Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me this week. If you tuned in last week, uh, I started off sharing week one of my God and Government class that I'm teaching at Hilltown Baptist Church. And so this week, I'll share with you week two of that class. And so without further ado, week two of God and Government. Okay, welcome everyone to week two of God and Government. Just as a reminder, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Every square inch belongs to Jesus, King Jesus. All right, before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord God, we pray, Father, thank you for this day. Despite the rain, Lord, and uh, inability to have the picnic today, Lord, we, we thank you that we can gather safely, freely, uh, and in comfort to learn and to talk and to discuss and to glorify you. Uh, we just pray that you be with us during this morning. Help us to uh, learn from your word and apply it. And uh, we pray that you would bless our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's see, there's a couple more seats up here. I, uh, sorry for not giving last week a uh, kind of a rundown of the, of the class schedule. So if you were here last week, it was an introduction into sphere sovereignty, the different uh, types of governments that God has created, uh, individual, self-government, family government, church, and civil government. This week, we're going to look at how they overlap, how they interact with each other, and uh, how they fail, and what happens when that happens. Next week, we'll look at the kingdom of God and how it is that Jesus is king, and what does that mean for us here on earth today. And then week four, <coughs> um, I'm going to be away, but Brad Lanning is going to teach on faithful stewardship uh, of, as, as good citizens, how do we steward that. And then there's no class on 4th of July weekend, but after that there's three more classes because we end in, at the end of July, so August it's over. So week five we'll look at some principles of government, and then week six will be a fun one, civil disobedience and resistance. And then week seven, the last week, my plan is to have basically the, just a whole class on discussion, question and answer. Um, I put some 3x5 index cards in, in the back, on the table back there next to the, the bin of pens. Uh, I do try to leave some time for questions at the end of each class, but if there's a burning question that you have and it's not getting answered or there was not time, please uh, write it down. I'll collect them. Uh, you can also email me um, at eric.loophole.gmail.com, and I plan on having just a whole week where we just sit down and have a good conversation trying to tie up any loose ends and, and cover any things that maybe we miss. So that's the, the basic rundown here. So just as a reminder, my pretty little diagram that uh, I made there for last week is a general summary of the four governments that God has instituted with, of course, God's domain uh, over all of them. God is in control uh, over all the governments and has a say in how they're supposed to function and what they're what their job is. So to take a look at some of the areas of overlap, um, this is just a real quick, uh, several examples of where we do see common overlap. So 
uh, in the area of civil government, uh, I'm sorry, self-government and family government. You see, obviously, uh, when children are born, they're pretty much predominantly under the sphere of family government. They don't really do anything on their own, and they don't really have any independent decision-making. Uh, we tell them how to brush their teeth, how to get dressed, how to eat. Every single thing that they do is, is directed by the parents. Okay? And then as they get older, they begin to uh, separate themselves, not entirely, but they become more independent, right? They can do things on their own. They, they can go to the bathroom without help. They know how to brush their teeth. They can choose their own clothing. And then at some point, when they leave the home, they establish themselves, and they hopefully know how to control themselves. We taught them how to eat properly, how to take care of their bodies, and now they go on and they can do that. They can hold a job, they can get educated, they can read books, they can take care of themselves physically, and they can ideally start their own family government. So there's, they're shifting around, things move a little bit as, as, as people uh, get older. Uh, maybe that individual starts a family and now they have to govern themselves, they also have to govern their own children, and then maybe they serve in the church as an elder or deacon and they have to govern the church. And then maybe, hey, they get involved in local school board or uh, local government in some township, whatever, committee. And now they're involved in the civil government. So individuals can operate in, in all of these areas. And what they might do uh, in the church government, they're not going to necessarily do the same thing in their family. And what they do in their family, they might not necessarily do the same thing as a school board um, person. So. Um, so really, with regards to self-government, family government, it's kind of shared with regards to child-rearing, education. People are responsible for their own education. I mean, we even tell our kids today they have a responsibility to study. They have to do their homework. They need to tell us when things are, are due. They're not gonna, we're not going to do their projects for them as parents. Um, so they have to govern themselves in that regard. Uh, but we also oversee their education uh, with the church and the family, discipleship, and handling of widows and orphans. We talked about last week, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 mentions, you know, who, wh which women get added to the list of widows for the church. Uh, if there is family that should help, they should, they should be encouraged to help before the church steps in. But there is an overlap there. Uh, parents need to disciple their children in the faith, and the church helps disciple parents and children. Obviously, we have Sunday school, youth programs, all kinds of things, right? Um, in the realm of the civil government and the church government, there is actually some overlap there. There's no absolute separation of church and state. The church administers marriage and helps with divorce, but the state also wants to know what's going on with marriage and divorce. And probably one of the best examples of an overlap of church and state is the military chaplain system, which is older than our country. There have been Christian chaplains serve in the military. They wear the uniform, but they have a cross on their, on their uniform. And they are ordained in the church. They have to come from a recognized um, denomination, a Christian church denomination. And then the civil government says, okay, you can now administer to the spiritual needs of the soldiers. And you are ordained to do so uh, by both the church and the state. And then... Uh, obviously, in the realm of self-government and civil government, you have criminal law and civil law. Those who can't govern themselves, uh, the civil government might come after them. Or if two people sue each other, 
then the civil government has to get involved in disputes between individuals, right? That's a civil lawsuit. You know, you, you borrowed my car, you crashed it, I'm going to sue you, and now we have to go to the courts. If we can't resolve it ourselves, or if the church can't really help us resolve it, or if our families can't really help us resolve it, then the civil government has to uh, get involved in that. So those are just some examples of these, these overlaps that, that exist. Um, but one of the key um, you know, um, structures of society is predominantly the family, because like I said before, it's out of the family that individuals can govern themselves, and then they can go on to do other things, serve in the church or serve in the civil government. Uh, families are the training grounds for children. Uh, they form the little platoons, as uh, one uh, politician, uh, Edmund Burke, in the 1700s in England, he was um, a British member of parliament. He called families little platoons that go around and, and uh, establish society. Uh, they are the, the first principle of, of, of society. It's basically a molecule that holds things together. So the idea is that we're not just a bunch of random atoms um, floating around um, on our own, autonomous, but there are molecules that are formed first with the family structure and then other structures are formed after that. You have churches, you have other associations, corporations, things like that. So it's a molecular society with the family at its core that holds it uh, together. And it's interesting, um, I looked in scripture and I just did a quick search on the term heads of fathers houses. And that is uh, that comes up over 50 times in Scripture. So both in the Old and New Testament, and, and if you read throughout it, uh, households are so important. Um, Cornelius, his household comes to faith in the Lord. So households are the building block of society. That's where work and education took place. That's where um, the home was the place of business. Uh, not so much today with after the Industrial Revolution, now people are going to work in offices and cubicles and factories. But uh, before that, I mean, you know, the, you would, you would, the farm was the place of business, or you would make something in your house and then you would sell it uh, at your home, or you would live in the same location that you worked. And it was also a place of worship. You probably recall hearing about all the various household gods uh, when, when, when Jacob and 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 went to uh, lived with Laban, and then he got Rachel and Leah, uh, married them, and they left, and Rachel took with her the household gods of Laban. Uh, that was a, a big problem there. So every household had their had their gods, right? And we even talk about, and, and the scripture talks about even the temple of the Lord is considered to be the house of the Lord. It's the household of God is the temple where the Lord dwells. So society is not a random collection of individuals there is a molecular structure there that's really important to keep society together. So I want to go over just a few specific examples of overlap where we see in scripture. Uh, one with regards to the church and the civil government. So would someone please read 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay. So, what we see there, what is our prayer as, as Christians? We want to pray for the rulers to 
Um, we want them to be saved, first of all. We want all people to be saved, including kings and those in authority. And one of the purposes is that we could live in peace, that the church can do its job, um, and they'll not harass us and kind of leave us alone, so that individuals and families can flourish, and the church can evangelize, share the gospel, and essentially live in peace. And that's that's what we're that's what we're praying for all the time. That's what we're called to pray for as Christians. How about Acts 24, 24 through 25, please? <coughs> discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Yeah. So if you recall, you can you know read the greater context of the story there. Um, Paul was arrested, falsely accused by, uh, by the Jews in Jerusalem. Then he was brought to the governing authorities and they basically sit on his case for several years. Um, the governors are trying to do the Jews a favor to get Paul executed, and he's not really seeing much justice done, but he's brought before the governor. And he talks to the governor, Felix, and he reasons about uh, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. So kind of wonder what that conversation in specifics detailed, but uh, obviously it made Felix uncomfortable, and he said, uh, We'll talk later. <laughs> I'll come back. You have a question? I want to go yeah. back to that Timothy verse where yeah, it says, first of all, we are to pray for kings and all those in authority. Yeah. And we should be doing that now for who's in authority of our country. Absolutely. No matter who they are. I agree. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, at all levels, federal, state, local, doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not. If they're not Christian, we pray they would become Christian, submit to the Lordship of God. Uh, if they are Christian, we pray for wisdom, that they wouldn't be tempted by power. And uh, in either case, you want w wisdom, and you pray that, uh, that God restrain their, restrain their sin so they don't do as much damage as, as they might do. So that's a, that's a good word. Thank you for that. So, but we see there, uh, yeah, Acts, uh, in Acts, Paul is, 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 has no problem telling the governor about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And then later on, uh, we're not going to read that passage, but later on he does end up talking to King Agrippa, so even higher authority, and he actually tries to get Agrippa to, to convert to Christianity, and Agrippa even says, are you trying to, to make me a Christian? And, and Paul says famously, um, I, would, I would that everyone be like me except for these chains that I'm, that I'm wearing. So he wants everyone uh, there in the room, all the rulers, to ideally become Christian, but uh, sadly, it doesn't happen, at least not at that time. Uh, another example of an overlap between uh, really the family and the civil government is the issue of the rebellious youth. Would someone please read Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21? I have that. Excellent. Right. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline, discipline him, his mother and father shall punch him in the face. <laughs> I see where you got that. Same translation as you. That's the same translation as Chris. That's awesome. <laughs> That's also a textual variant. But <laughs> nice. His 
mother and father shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this is this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Yep. So what happens later on after that is they stone him with stones. Uh, now, obviously, that seems pretty, pretty severe, pretty harsh there. But the idea is that here we have a situation where the family is trying to exercise government over their son. And this is presumably a, an, uh, an older son, a young adult, maybe adult. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard, probably engaged in, in sexual morality and other inappropriate behaviors. And the family is unable to, to, to govern him. And the civil government is interested in this and things going well amongst the family because if the family uh, can't raise up good citizens, it will become the problem of the civil government eventually. And the civil government was going to have to step in at some point. And in this case, the parents are the two witnesses because the Bible requires two or three witnesses to testify as someone is guilty. And both parents serve as those witnesses it's not that someone calls CPS or anything like that. They take the son to the state and they say, this individual is a problem that we cannot handle and he is going, he's now a problem for you. And we are testifying against him um, that we need you to do something about that. So again, uh, even though we don't necessarily stone our rebellious children today or the government doesn't uh, put them to death. Certainly, we have juvenile detention centers. There is situations where today um, the family can't handle it, and the civil government steps in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, just so I can kind of get this in the right sure. in my mind. That was from the Mosaic Law, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was that considered civil government or church government? I mean, that was a theocracy. It was kind of both. Yeah. So um, it would. That's fair point. It's a typical theocracy, although, well, we'll talk more later how the priests served as the judicial branch in a sense. They, they would judge whether or not you had violated God's law, and the prophets were the ones that gave God's law, like Moses is the prophet, he gave God's law. And then you have the elders as kind of the executive branch, so elders in all of the towns, their job is to enforce uh, the law. So. so yeah. Like, you set out your diagram with the four circles, mm -hmm. kind of our grid for understanding all this. And I'm just, whenever we look at anything in the Old Testament, is that applying to both the civil and the church circles, or the intersection between them? I, I don't mean to get all tough, no, it's good. I'm just trying to understand. No, that's good. Uh, thank you. And the answer is yes. There's, there's our principles that it would apply to, to both, I would say. Now, obviously, we've got to be careful. Um, I would say first take a, a law from the Old Testament, look at it in light of Christ. Now that Christ has come, what does that mean? And then how does it apply to the church? Okay. And then uh, what are the principles that can be derived that apply to other areas of life? A good example would be in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 9, and I'm going to, I think maybe next week we'll spend more time on, on the law and applying that. But uh, Paul argues that you should pay your pastors. Basically, he says, uh, those, who, those who teach well are, are worthy of double honor. And he kind of chastises the Corinthians for not paying their, their preachers. And he quotes from the law. He says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out 
the grain, which is from Deuteronomy 22. And then he says, is that really about oxen? It's really about us. Uh, the, the, the sower should sow in hope, and the reaper should reap in hope. And the principle there is that um, to muzzle the ox is to, is to prevent the ox from enjoying any of the fruits of its labor. So while it's treading out the grain, you would muzzle an ox to make sure it doesn't eat anything. So you could maximize your profits. Okay? It would be like today hiring someone to pick apples from your orchard, and then you say to that person, you are not allowed to eat a single apple while you're out there. I don't care if it drops to the ground. You will not, you will, if I see you eating an apple, you're fired. And it's kind of cruel because your goal as a landlord is to maximize and squeeze every drop of profit out of that person or that beast of burden, the animal, right? So it's not just about oxen. It's about the, the principle applies in, in multiple areas. And it applies to the church. You should pay your pastors. And it also applies in other areas of, of life. And I would say that there's principles that apply um, even today, people should be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor as they labor, uh, and you should not be a stingy um, boss or, or landlord, if that makes sense. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that all makes sense. I guess maybe I was mm -hmm. just thrown off a little bit by the example from the Mosaic Law being yeah. stated that it's overlap with the Old Testament. That's fine. So thank you. Yeah, well, uh, it, it is harder back in ancient Israel. Uh, but, I mean, the elders are not the ones serving in the temple, per se. Like, the, the temple would be your, where you go to worship. The priests would serve there. But the elders are just the, the old, man of, old men of the village. And they had authority um, to, to enforce the laws. So that's kind of where that would fall. But Adam, thoughts there? Yeah, I do. I would, yeah. Uh, maybe a quick clarification or a possible thought on this. Sure. Mm -hmm. When we talk about civil, we're talking about like this uh, overarching government of authority for laws. So when we look at the Old Testament, the church, if you want to like equate your original diagram to the mm -hmm. Old Testament, um, the church would potentially be uh, the neighborly community mm -hmm. in which you're um, acting. So there are a lot of laws about how to treat your neighbors, what to do with like disputes between like a larger community in a sense, a larger family, but then there are also laws that have to do with like an overarching governorship mm -hmm. of like punishing, you know, big problems. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when we <coughs> say church and government, we're probably speaking more in terms of like the uh, the breadth of like community yeah. and, and how how much enforcement of like the law each body has. That's fair. So uh. Well, not necessarily, because uh, when we say church nowadays, we're talking about, like, this is, you know, this is church, this is, like, a group of a bunch of families. But in the Old Testament, you know, essentially, like, all the Israelites followed, or should follow, the same thing. So, in a sense, they were the church. So, it would be, like, the, um, it'd be, like, how you treat neighbors or community members. Not necessarily, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I appreciate that. Thank you, Adam. And we can certainly... Yeah, and more, as more questions come up, please raise your hand or, or come afterwards and we'll keep talking about it. I don't want this to be unclear. 
Um, so those are some examples, though, in, in, in Scripture of different authorities um, interacting, intermingling, and overlapping with, with one another. Uh, marriage, I wanted to bring up just real quick, um, is another one that today you see is very much uh, overlap in multiple spheres. It's ordained by God, so it existed before any civil government existed because it was made in the Garden of Eden when, when, when God brought Eve to Adam. Right, instituted before the civil government. And what's interesting is that uh, before there was marriage licensing, we had what was called common law marriage. Okay, and just uh, common law marriage was simply the idea that the church uh, marriage was an individual or or a um, a private matter or a church matter, and the civil government didn't like grant people permission to get married. Um, and it's interesting that marriage licensing uh, did not exist until really the uh, you know modern period, 16, 1700s, 1800s or so. And actually, at first, it was not meant as a means of giving permission to get married, but as a help for the civil government to deal with disputes. So you know, the idea was two people get married in the church, and they don't. There's no license. There's no paperwork per se, and there's some kind of inheritance or property dispute. So if you filed a license with the civil government, at least you had proof that, hey, we're married, so the wife is entitled to this, or these are legitimate children, this property goes to this person, and it was meant to, to help uh, with matters of the law. It was not a permission slip from the state. But later, it actually became a matter of permission, and sadly, in our own country, um, it was used early on, like in North Carolina, for instance, to prevent interracial marriage. So uh, out of a racist um, uh, motivation, North Carolina, uh, in the, before the Civil War, said you had to get a license to make sure that you were fit to marry each other. So it became more of permission rather than trying to help out with the, the legalities. And then in the late 1800s, common law marriage is essentially essentially gone. Like you, you have to get a marriage license today. Although uh, I did look it up in Pennsylvania, you still there are there is a marriage. Um, I believe it was it's originated with the Quakers, and I don't know if it's called a, a Quaker marriage or something like that. There's still recognized marriage that does not require a license here in Pennsylvania, and the Quakers helped to bring that about. So that was just I, I bring that up just to show how things overlap and how things changed over time and in some ways the civil government has has taken over more of the responsibility and authority and, and, and power regarding the issue of marriage when it's not really their domain um, it's more of the family individual and the church there so Eric, yeah there was a time when the church was not involved at all with marriage yeah Mm. that the church found it necessary to, to kind of get involved. But prior to that, it was, uh, again, as you pointed out, it wasn't unique to, to the Christian church. In fact, yeah. there were two orders of service. One was uh, what they called the solemnization of the marriage. It's people who just got married by the state, but later became Christians or wanted to have the church recognize it, so mm. they had the solemnization of the service. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was, there was a day when marriage was not a church thing. Mm -hmm. definitions of marriage today, the church ought to back out of it as well. 
restrict itself to solemnizing Christian relationships rather than being uh, an agent of the state yeah. to marry anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but the church, but the state has an interest in knowing who's married and who's not married for the purposes of, of legality, who's a legitimate heir, um, yeah, taxes, or who can make decisions on behalf of one spouse or another, medical, medical decisions, power of attorney, things like that, all of that. The, the, the state does care, but the question is who controls it? Who gets to, who, do you have to get permission from Caesar to get married, or is it I file a license so that it helps in case there's any kind of issues in the future. So uh, I just, yeah, thank you for that. It was an interesting um, idea looking at marriage here. Uh, I want to take a look now at what happens when spheres fail. Uh, I'm sure we can all imagine situations where that happens. Uh, but, you know, we live in a fallen world and there are emergency situations that take place. Families crumble, marriages fall apart. Uh, Sometimes the church is absent or destroyed. Uh, sometimes the civil government is destroyed and there's pure anarchy, right? So, you know, there's emergency situations where one sphere has to um, take over the responsibilities of, a, of another. Uh, sometimes there's temptation to take over, to get involved in business that's not, that's not supposed to be that, state, that sphere's business. And sometimes it's just ignorance, not recognizing that there are limits to what a sphere should be doing, uh, but it just kind of ig ignores them. And other spheres um, have to suffer for it. Um, and some historical examples of that, would someone please read Judges 17.6? <clears throat> Who had that? I know I gave it to somebody. Judges? Yeah, 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ooh, yeah. So anarchy, essentially. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, I could not imagine living in a time when everyone did whatever they thought was right, and there's no authority, no, no government, essentially, um, at least holding things together. Yes, yeah, kind of, in many ways, uh, sadly, maybe we're going back to that, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Uh, and what that leads to, though, is, well, several different examples. That's an, that's an example where the, where the civil government falls apart. Uh, in the Dark Ages, uh, interestingly, and, and you brought up, uh, Chris, the, uh, uh, you know, the Constantine era, but it's interesting, after the Roman Empire collapsed, um, there wasn't an emperor to go to. There wasn't a lot of civil structures anymore during the Dark Ages, and people went to the church. People went to like the Bishop of Rome, and he and that helped to um, lead us to eventually the the you know help support the papacy, the Pope, um, because hey, um, everything's falling apart. It'd be like today if there's no more uh, local government at Hilltown, uh, everything collapses, and people are like, oh Tim. You know, what do you think? What, what, you know, everything's falling apart. Can you help us here with handling matters of law and civil, uh, uh, civil control and, and, and peace and stability? So you have situations like that, and and that did lead to eventually uh, a conflict between the church and the state because the church got involved in a lot of a lot of issues that 
uh, some would argue belong to the state alone. And so that's the issue of, of sacralism. So sacralism is a fancy word of a confusion between the church and the state where each is trying to do the roles of the other or incur into each other's spheres and it becomes very hard to disentangle that where you have the church and state together, you have um, inquisitions that take place, you have all kinds of all kinds of things there. So um, that was an example. Essentially, the collapse of civil government and the filling of that vacuum by the church did lead to um, unhealthy things in the future when the church did not kind of go back to the way it was supposed to be. Um, it kind of kind of clung on to its authority that it had. Um, when the Roman Empire collapsed. And then there's other examples of organized crime and, and the mafia. Essentially, that's where you have families that, that end up wielding the sword as if they are the state government, you know? Um, the Russian mafia, Italian mafia, uh, they essentially form themselves little spheres of, of civil government where they make the law and the government, the broader government has no ability to stop them, right? You have issues like that today in gangs. Gangs have their own territory. Um, they have their own law. They have their own hierarchy. And there are some areas where y you wouldn't enter without a, a heavy SWAT team in some of those areas because it's, it's pretty vicious, right? So uh, when, when you have an absence of, of authority and a, and a vacuum, something's going to fill uh, that vacuum there. Um, I remember uh, when we were in Afghanistan, uh, we, would, we would do missions over there uh, trying to deal with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And it was, it was quite disturbing because the government in Afghanistan, the officially recognized Republic government of Afghanistan, did not have power essentially beyond the capital city of Kabul. Uh, outside of the city, it was like a no man's land. And these terrorist groups would just set up checkpoints on, on the roads. And they would just pull people over and you know, hold them at gunpoint and rob them or kidnap their, their children and ransom them. And so I just can't imagine living in a, in a world where you drive down 611 or 313 and there's armed men there and they, they stop you, pull you over, and they have you get out of the car and you're like, well, where are the cops? And then there, there are none. There are no police. We are. This is this is our toll booth. So you need to pay thousands of dollars, or uh, you're done. So they set up all these little fiefdoms, if you will. Um, and again, uh, you know, when there's a vacuum, someone is going to fill it. And you also have the issue of vigilantism, right? So uh, when 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 things aren't getting done, um, some people decide to take matters in their own hands. Uh, and it, it ends up badly, right? They want to become vigilantes and enforce the law as individuals uh, when they shouldn't. It is kind of interesting in our culture. We have this obsession with that, by the way. Uh, if you think of any any superhero, Marvel, uh, DC Comics, you know, whether it's Batman or the Avengers, right? What is the basic premise behind all of them? The civil government is either incompetent or or bad failing, and we need these superheroes to save the day and to bring justice and bring law and order to society. And it's no, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not surprising that the Avengers are called the Avengers when it's interesting that Romans 13 says that the civil government is God's Avenger, but they have taken that upon themselves because the civil government is failing. 
So our culture is obsessed with, with that kind of vigilantism and justice um, because the government is, is failing miserably. So, yeah, go ahead, Brad. Um, when you say COVID, the whole COVID situation brought to the surface some of the more modern day sphere failures and sphere confusions um, that we were already you know, dealing with that kind of forced us as a church and to like look at it more carefully. I would say probably, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, I, yeah. When when stressful things happen to a society, it, it shakes it up. You see the weakness, the cracks become become worse. If the family is weakened, already weakened, um, it's the it's no different than when Jesus talks about the the house that's built on the on the sand, right? Like it looks fine, but when the difficulty comes, that's when you see what's really happening, um, and you see the weakness that's that's there. So maybe things were okay for a little bit, uh, but when things can start to get really bad, if the family structure is is not strong, individuals, you know, there's, there's they lose there's not there's no control there. People are suffering from depression or drug abuse or um, all kinds of, of things, you know, shootings. Uh, there's fatherlessness going around, right? Uh, breakup of the family. So there's a lot of anger, and uh, stress just makes that all worse. And if the government's doing something before that it shouldn't have been doing, but it kind of got away with it, you know, supply chain issues or whatever, now it's it's it shows that it, it's weaker. Like it, it's not supposed to be able to. It's not supposed to be doing those things. And the stressful situation has made that evident. Is that kind of what you're yeah. getting? I, I was thinking more along the lines of mm -hmm. you're dealing with the family, mm -hmm. so, which is actually probably more important than what I was thinking about. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking more along the lines of the confusion between like the church and the civil government mm. and those lines, mm -hmm. um, those spheres, and um, you know when it comes to like, you know, where does the church have started uh, to lead or oh, okay stuff like that. to shut down meetings? Yeah, just I think yeah. It, it forced us as a body to like, okay, we need to see, you know, you know, where is this proper sphere, or where is it not proper yes. sphere, and stuff like yeah. that. But what you're saying is actually even more important because it's more foundational, the family sphere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's where I was, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, about. Chris, thoughts? Uh, just, I think that tension has always been there. It's, yeah. it's become amplified. Yes. My roommates in college had a younger brother who died when he was six hmm. because they were uh, Christian scientists, and he got some kind of sickness which was very curable. That's right. Amplified. That's right. And as Christians, we have to think through these things, and we have to look at Scripture and try to glean these principles from Scripture. Um, we have to do some hard work, essentially. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Um, some common trends that we see in any sphere failure is refusing responsibility. Would someone please read Genesis 3:12 through 13? Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Yeah. So it's not my fault. <laughs> the man's like, well, you know, the woman that you gave me, God, um, that's, it's, that's, that's on you. You know, I don't know why you gave me this woman, but she's the one that did, you know. And then the woman's like, well, the serpent, uh, you know, hey. So refusing responsibility is a big, uh, is a big factor in all of this. Um, abdicating assigned duties, right? So families not disciplining their children. Would someone read uh, the three proverbs up there that I assigned? All right. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Flipping the page. Got me running all over here. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with a rod, they will not die. Punish them with a rod and save them from death. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom. Yeah. So those are just three. There's there's several others in there though. The idea though that folly is bound up in the child, um, and if you actually refuse the discipline, you're going to drive them to death, and they are ashamed to their to their mother, to the parents, for those who are undisciplined. So if families don't discipline their children, they won't be able to govern themselves when they separate, and someone else is going to have to do it. Someone else will have to govern them, and that will necessarily, if it's not the church or the family, it's going to be the state that has to do it, uh, and it's not going to do it very, uh, very well. Um, church is now preaching the word faithfully. Another abdication of assigned duties. Could someone read Second Timothy four one through four, please? I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Yeah. So churches that fail to preach the word, and they preach what uh, people want to hear, itching ears, they will wander off into myths, and um, again, will will hurt what the church's mission is here. How about the government not punishing evil? Ecclesiastes 8.11, please. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. All right, so good, good old King Solomon there says, uh, yeah, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't execute justice quickly, people start deciding that it's okay to keep doing wrong, and they're, they're, their hearts are filled with desire to do more wrong. So again, abdicating assigned duties, refusing responsibility, or taking unassigned duties. We mentioned before <coughs> individuals or families taking the sword uh, upon themselves, churches taking on the duties of the family or the duties of the state, or state taking on the duties of the family and the church. And I want to spend some time focusing on that last one because even though we have talked about there, there's always going to be examples where the, in, where the family fails or the church fails or they abuse their power, the typical tendency throughout history is for the state or the civil government to take power upon itself. Um, and we'll see why in a minute, but it, it is tied into idolatry and a desire to be like God. So the greatest trend is idolatry and tyranny and it's 
Um, it kind of begins with the Tower of Babel, but I want, I want to look a little bit at uh, John 19, 12 through 16, and 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. Will someone please read John 19, please? First Samuel 8, please. But the people refused to listen to Samuel, which merely said, We want a king over us, and we will be like all the other nations. Would the king lead us and go out before us and fight our battles? So I bring those two passages up because there's some irony there how the people of Israel in the wilderness, they wanted a king like the other nations and Samuel had warned them not to do this, not to, not to refuse God um, and, to, and to claim a king. And they said, nah, we're going we're gonna to pick a king like the other nations. And then the similar thing happens here in the New Testament with the Jewish people saying, nah, we don't want Jesus. We claim Caesar as king. We have no, no king but Caesar uh, there. So it's this... Uh, rejection of God in both places and this clamor um, for a human king, a human authority, that, that this, this parallel is, is quite striking. Um, and we see that the idea here is that to have unity without God, which is a form of idolatry, uh, began with the Tower of Babel. Uh, would someone please read Genesis 11, 1 through 4? Yeah. So Babel means gate of God in uh, the ancient language there. Uh, I forget exactly. Akkadian perhaps? or Yeah, I forget. But uh, yeah, I did look that one up. Babel. El is usually the word for God. Uh, Babel means gate of God. And then Shem is a name. Let us make a Shem for ourselves, um, a name for ourselves. And what's interesting is that uh, God divided the world after that. And uh, this kind of judgment, he comes down, he sees what they're doing, nothing will be too great for them, and he, sp he spreads them out, separates their languages, causes them to go all over the face of the earth. Uh, we see that um, this is mentioned again in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. Would someone please read that? Gives to all mankind life and breath 
of everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Yeah. So it's interesting there is that Paul ties the um, the spreading, the, the, the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place all over the face of the earth. And he ties that to the purpose of so that they would seek God. There's a purpose behind the, the spreading out that they would seek God. And we see in, in, in Pentecost that God is undoing Babel and he brings all languages together uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, when, when Pentecost occurs and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Over, over the people. So there's the undoing, if you will, of Babel, but it's, it's for God's glory, not for, not for man's. And so the issue has always been the glory of mankind versus the glory of God. Uh, the world needs a savior. It wants to rebuild Babel. It wants unity, right? But the problem is, if there is no God that's going to do it, if there's no Messiah, then we have to save ourselves. We live in a fallen world, and everyone knows something is wrong with this, with this world. And there's this desire for justice, for peace, for security, for unity, um, and for glory. But without, without the Messiah, the only option is that we do it ourselves. And the state, the civil government, is the greatest embodiment of human power and human will. And that's why there's such a tendency for governments to be strong and, 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 and accumulate more for themselves, because they are the epitome of human power and human will. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar, you see it with Pharaoh, with Caesar, uh, all throughout scripture, all throughout history, this desire to accumulate and to try to set up this united uh, uh, worldwide empire uh, under under one authority, but it's not God, it's, it's something else. And I want to share with you an interesting uh, historical um, relic. Uh, it's actually it's called the the, the Prean calendar inscription, and it was I don't know when it was dug up, but this is a an image of it. Uh, it's um, it's dated around 9 A.D. Okay, and this calendar inscription uh, is uh, essentially what happened was a governor of Asia Minor, his name was Paulus Maximus. He wanted to change the New Year's Day to Caesar Augustus's birthday. So he, he basically sends out this um, request to all the, the Greek cities in Asia saying, uh, I think we should um, change New Year to, to um, August, uh, Caesar Augustus's birthday. And uh, there's two parts of it. So here's the first part. It says this. Uh, the governor, governor Paulus says this. It is a question whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is more pleasant or more advantageous the day which we might justly set on a par with the beginning of everything, in practical terms at least, in that he restored order when everything was disintegrating and falling into chaos, and gave a new look to the whole world, a world which would have met destruction with the utmost pleasure if Caesar had not been born as a common blessing to all. For that reason, one might justly take this to be the beginning of life and living, the end of regret at one's birth. 
It is my view that all the communities should have one and the same New Year's Day, the birthday of the most divine Caesar, and that on that day, 23rd September, all should enter their term of office. And then, this it actually does happen, and a declaration is made, and it says this. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings, not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. And since the birthday of the God first brought to the world the good tidings residing in him, for that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all the cities should begin on 23rd September, the birthday of Augustus, and that the, latter, that the letter of the proconsul and the decree of Asia should be inscribed on a pillar of white marble, which is to be placed in the sacred precinct of Rome and Augustus. Now, what's interesting about that is that you see some of the key phrases of good tidings, right? And that should remind you of the Gospels. And an argument is made that these Gospels, many of them are a challenge, in a sense, to Caesar as divine. Uh, we have Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel, the euangelion, the, the, the good tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Luke 2.10, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. The same good tidings, or, or euangelion, uh, good, good news that was inscribed and proclaimed um, in 9 AD uh, before Mark and Luke had written their Gospels. So the idea, though, is that uh, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. If Jesus is God, Caesar is not God. Um, and you can't give to Caesar what rightly belongs to God, which is divine authority and, um, and glory. Now, wanted to talk a little bit. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to add. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Divine wisdom. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I wanted to, we're running low on time here, but I just want to briefly mention uh, the idea of, of government taking over and basically becoming almost like a god uh, continues on even into the modern era, uh, era by a man named Thomas Hobbes who lived in England. He was a political philosopher and he wrote a book called Leviathan. Um, and basically his argument was that people are so wicked that they require an absolute ruler to control them and to, and to just knock their heads together and keep them from, from killing each other. Uh, so, so you have this picture of this government, and it's, it's made up of the people, too. So you see this, this man is, is actually made up of hundreds of individual people. They're all humans that are inside his body, and he's coming up out of the sea, and he's going to reign over, uh, over the land, out of the sea of people, kind of like the, the beast out of the sea is what uh, Hobbes wanted to kind of communicate. So Leviathan was a reference to the book of Job where it says there is no power on earth like him. Um, so the idea in all of this, uh, this is just one example of that as Leviathan grows, it usurps the individual 
uh, individuals cannot buy and sell. Uh, would someone please read Revelation 13, 17? Uh, it takes more than God requires. Someone read 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. The people spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of the king. Said, this will be the peace uh, of the king. This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariot and among his uh, horsemen, and they will run before his chariot. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and, and, and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to keep his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. He will also take your daughters for um, perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and uh, give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give uh, this to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and uh, you yourselves will become his servants. But then you will cry out in that day because of your sin and you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Yeah. So the idea there is that as he grows in power and tries to uh, become more like God. He takes more than what even God required. Only God can demand 10%. But for any for Caesar to require that puts himself on the same level or above God in that regard. And so that, that's what Samuel was telling to the people of Israel. Hey, you want a king like the other nations? That's what you're going to get. You want the pagan kings? then this is what it's going to look like, and when you cry out, God will not answer you. And they, of course, we know that they say, well, give us a king anyways. Give it to us anyways, right? And then uh, as, the, as Leviathan grows and usurps the individual, disarms the population. 1 Samuel 13, 19-22, please. So the Philistines purposely wanted Israel disarmed so that they could be easier to control. And only the royal household of Saul and Jonathan could afford to have weapons. Um, so again, just if you wish to have authority and power over someone, you have to um, disarm them in that regard. Um, so the Leviathan usurps the individual, usurps the family, the role of father and provider. Uh, it breaks up the family to atomize it, and then it restructures it to, to its own desire. Uh, Leviathan also usurps the church. It attempts to reconcile by the sword, and it proclaims a false gospel. So just a couple of examples. Uh, materialism is the idea that you are just your stuff. So if I just redistribute the stuff, everybody, and I just give you the stuff, everyone will be happy. Uh, environmentalism, you are just a product of your environment. So if I change your environment, I can make things good. I can fix everything. Just put you in the right spot and everything's good. Or, Dar or Darwinism. 
right? You're just your DNA. So if we change your DNA, or if we give you the right nutrition or whatnot, or if we breed the right people and, and, and purge the, the unhealthy or the impure people, uh, the ones that have genetic disorders, uh, we can, we can, uh, you know, we can bring about heaven on earth. We can bring about um, a peaceful, prosperous world, right? Um, so uh, you're just your, you're just your DNA. So these are false ideas and false gospels, and the true gospel uh, is a threat to that uh, and has to be dealt with. So, so again, these are all just areas in which Leviathan grows, and just a, a depiction of it. I mean, you see. As the state grows in its power, it takes it takes things that belong to the family or belongs to the church, and it it destroys families and other structures, and you just have a whole bunch of individuals, and it ends up becoming what Thomas Hobbes said in Leviathan: if everyone is just doing whatever is right in their own eyes, it's pure chaos. The only way to hold it together is by force, by coercion, and by very strong-handed power. Right? Um, I want to read to you in these last five minutes uh, something that I just I read several months ago and it really it really struck me. So I just want to briefly introduce it. It's from a man named Alexis de Tocqueville. I don't know if any of you may have heard of him. Uh, he was a Frenchman who lived in the 1800s. He lived through the French Revolution and then he came to America uh, and he toured all the states and he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And he said some very nice things about our democratic system, but he got to see both American democracy and French Revolution democracy. And in 1835, he wrote a book called Democracy in America. Uh, and I want to read, read a portion uh, of it to you. It is a chapter on what type of despotism democratic nations have to fear. So this is 200 years ago that he writes this. So I'm just going to read it, and you can follow along. Quote, it seems to me, it seems that if despotism came to be established among the democratic nations of today, it would have other characteristics. I see an innumerable crowd of similar and equal men who spin around restlessly in order to gain small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Each one of them withdrawn apart is like a stranger to the destiny of all the others. His children and his particular friends form for him the entire human species. As for the remainder of his fellow citizens, he is next to them, but he does not see them. He touches them without feeling them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone. And if he still has a family, you can say that at least he no longer has a country. Above those men arises an immense and tutelary power that alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyment and of looking after their fate. It is absolute, detailed, regular, far-sighted, and mild. It would resemble paternal power if, like it, it had as a goal to prepare men for manhood, but on the contrary, it seeks only to fix them irrevocably in childhood. It likes the citizens to enjoy themselves, provided that they think only about enjoying themselves. It works willingly for their happiness, but it wants to be the unique agent for it and the sole arbiter. It attends to their security, provides for their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their principal affairs, directs their industry, settles their estates, divides their inheritances, how can it not remove entirely from them the trouble to think and the difficulty of living? After having thus taken each individual one by one into its powerful hands and having molded each as it pleases, 
The sovereign power extends its arms over the entire society. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules, which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to go beyond the crowd. It does not break wills, but it softens them, bends them, and directs them. In certain moments of great passions and great dangers, the sovereign power becomes suddenly violent and arbitrary. Habitually, it is moderate, benevolent, regular, and humane. It rarely forces action, but it constantly opposes your acting. It does not destroy, it prevents birth. It does not tyrannize, it hinders, it represses, it extinguishes, it stupefies. And finally, it reduces each nation to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. I suppose that a democratic nation, after destroying within it all the secondary powers, establishes in its midst a very inquisitorial, very extensive, very centralized, and very powerful executive power, that it confers on this power the right to conduct all the details of public affairs and to lead a part of private affairs, that it puts individuals in a strict and daily dependence on this power, but that it makes this executive power itself depend on an elected legislature, which, without governing, traces the principal rules of the government. Our contemporaries are incessantly tormented by two hostile passions. They feel the need to be led and the desire to remain free. Unable to destroy either the one or the other of these opposite instincts, they work hard to satisfy both at the same time. They imagine a unique, tutelary, omnipotent power, but elected by the citizens. They combine centralization and sovereignty of the people. That gives them some relief. They console themselves about being in tutelage by thinking that they have chosen their tutors themselves. Each individual endures being bound because he sees that it is not a man or a class, but the people itself that holds the end of the chain. In this system, the citizens emerge for a moment from dependency in order to indicate their master and return to it. It is, in fact, difficult to imagine how men who have entirely given up the habit of directing themselves could succeed in choosing well those who should lead them. And it cannot be believed that an energetic and wise government can ever come out of the votes of a people of servants. A constitution that would be Republican at the head and ultra-monarchical in all the other parts has always seemed to me an ephemeral monster. So that was written over 200 years, almost 200 years ago by a man who certainly was prophetic in many ways uh, regarding what he saw as if you have the breakdown of all these secondary powers, church, family, other organizations, and all these individuals that cannot govern themselves, you will end up with this immense power that micromanages everything and essentially is despotic, but in a different kind of way than is typically seen like with a Hitler or a Stalin. Yeah, Brett. Correct. He's talking about which we're seeing, you know, emerge in our culture now, which would only really emerge in a democratic society, and both a hard totalitarianism, which you see more like China. Yes. Um, both recognize rightly so that the gospel is a threat to them. I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. they're, they're, they actually see it correctly. Yeah. And the reason why they're a threat is my last slide. Yeah. Just to end on a good note, the solution to all this is Christ Himself, right? Let me read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So Jesus is a direct challenge, because this, this is as clear as it can be. All, I mean, how many times is all mentioned in this passage? All things, heaven on earth, belong to him. So if that's the case, then Jesus is a threat to anybody who would want to claim what belongs to God, right? And that includes any kind of tyrannical government. And that happens all, at all levels, government, family, individuals. You have individual tyrants. You have family tyrants, right? And you have civil government tyrants. And so I focused on the civil government because that is the epitome of idolatry and tyranny is the rise of Babel in order to challenge God, right? So sorry we're low on time, but final thoughts. If, again, if you, don't ha if you have uh, big questions, please put them on the card back there. But I want to leave at least one minute for that. No, yes? All right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, please. Lord, thank you again for this day. Time goes by so fast, but uh, we praise you, Lord, for it. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, uh, as our King of Kings. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we go now to worship you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed week two of God and Government. Uh, again, if you have any questions, comments, if you were at the class and weren't able to get your, your questions answered, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, places like that. So I hope that you'll join me next time to look at week three of God and Government. So until then, take care and God bless. <laughs>